This is Labor Wave Radio. Labor Wave Radio is an independent podcast focusing on anti-capitalist analysis and labor organizing, and it's supported by our subscribers on our Patreon. So if you enjoy the show, please support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash laborwave. You can also support us in non-monetary ways by following our content on our social media, SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts, and leave us a review and a rating on those platforms because it really helps us reach new listeners. On this episode, Peter Cole joins the show to discuss the second edition of his book, Ben Fletcher, The Life and Times of a Black Wobbly, which is published by PM Press. The book is excellent. It delves into a fascinating historical period when the IWW was at its peak and provides a detailed portrait of the skills and organizing of Ben Fletcher. The range and scope of this episode expands over the backdrop of early 20th century Philadelphia while recounting the biographical details of Wobbly organizer Ben Fletcher, and it also tells the tale of the IWW legendary Local 8, a powerful dock workers union that Ben Fletcher helped found, which practiced anti-racist unionism. We also discussed the demise of Local 8, brought down by a multitude of historical forces such as the First World War, as well as fraught internal divisions between the IWW and Communist Party, along with competition from business unions such as the International Longshoremen's Association. So there's really a lot of content, there's a lot that we dig into, and we provide links in our show notes to the book. We highly encourage that you get a copy as soon as possible and start a book club around it if you are in a local union. With that, enjoy the episode. Peter Cole, thank you for joining us on Labor Wave. Thank you so much, Alex. It's a pleasure to join you. I've really been enjoying your book a lot, particularly because I have recently relocated to the city of Philadelphia. Some, I think I'd enjoy the story of Ben Fletcher no matter what and the history, but it becomes more alive because I happen to live in Point Breeze and there's all these great accounts of like marches in Point Breeze, some of the radicalism in the streets. So I'd love to talk about that. But before getting there, I was very interested in your preface to the new edition, talking about why a second edition of this book on Ben Fletcher. So can you just share for our listeners why it's appropriate to re-excavate the history of this great one-time wobbly organizer? Of course. So I had started working on this as a dissertation project in the 90s, and then uh, was working on the book that became Wobblies on the Waterfront. And then as a sort of uh, second parallel project, uh, this book called Ben Fletcher, that was published by Charles Kerr Press. And, you know, in the mid-2000s, the first decade, when it was released, the world and the country were very different places. There are so many more people now who are thinking about um, these sorts of issues that Ben Fletcher's life and the union that he was a part of uh, really sort of represent and embody for people in our time. And so just as one example, the term racial capitalism existed in 2005 and six, but I didn't use it very much and very, very few people did. Um, It had sort of been um, sort of originated maybe by scholars in South Africa to sort of think about apartheid and capitalism, sort of then brought to the UK by exiles and then sort of introduced according to Robin Kelly through Cedric Robinson, who wrote his classic Black Marxism um, in part on sabbatical while in the UK where he met some of these South Africans. And so he is really sort of the intellectual father of that term in the U.S. 
But in the 20 teens and really the, the second half of the 20 teens, we see uh, an enormous growing um, sort of interest and awareness of the interconnections between white supremacy and capitalism in particular, and I'd say imperialism. And so when I had the opportunity, which is incredibly rare to sort of actually do a new edition, I, I jumped at the chance. And I should just say that the second edition is twice as long, uh, because in the interim of 15 years, approximately, I found a lot more things about Ben Fletcher and the union that he was a part of. And people found me who, or who knew me who found items. And even since the book has been published um, less than two months ago, I am embarrassed, but sort of in a way happy to say that I've learned more <laughs> about him. That'll continue, of course. So the third edition is soon to come out. There probably will not be a third edition. Nevertheless, uh, 2021 is a, a different time than 20, uh, 2005 and six, and, and, and we always look to the past through the eyes of the present. We always reinterpret the past through the present. Um, that's not a bad, that's only under, uh, natural. Um, and so, because we ask different things of the past based on where we are. And so I think that Ben Fletcher in 2021 is a, a different than Ben Fletcher in 2006. Yeah, so I want to learn a little bit more about Ben Fletcher, like who he was, where he was, and what time and period and how he was an organizer. But I just wanted to share with you, as I was reading this, one of the things that struck me is I was reminded of Howard Zinn, how he talked about how history is propelled by the countless acts of unknown people. And it just seems very appropriate to think of that quote in relation to Ben Fletcher, even though he was not unknown in his time, he's become so thoroughly erased from the histories. So. Can we re-excavate him? Can you please share for our listeners this person that we all should know about? Yeah, of course. I, I, I claim repeatedly that he is entirely unknown, and, uh, and that's a huge mistake. I definitely know he's entirely unknown, right? Even among historians like myself, professionals who are paid to sort of study the past, um, even among labor historians and, and the historians of African America, um, he's really, really sort of not known. It's not some conspiracy. But it is the truth. So Fletcher was born and raised in Philadelphia. He was born in 1890. Uh, at that time, almost all African-Americans were Republicans because it was the party of Lincoln. And so he was actually named Benjamin Harrison Fletcher after the sitting president at the time, although he always went by Ben. Um, his parents uh, had moved to Philadelphia probably not long before from Virginia. And uh, his parents, I I'm pretty sure, were born in the 1850s which means they probably were born enslaved, although that's not clear either. And Fletcher never commented upon that, or maybe it was just so typical that it wasn't even worthy of mention. But it is worthy of mention for us in the 21st century further removed. Uh, you know, and he was the first child. Uh, his family had another four or five kids. Um, one died in a young age. And uh, working class parents, they moved around Philadelphia and over the river into Camden on occasion. So Fletcher would have, uh, in, in the 19-teens, right, was around 20 years old, uh, working class, multiple occupations. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois' first book is about Philadelphia and um, called The Philadelphia Negro, published in 1899, I think. And he basically said that racism is the defining experience of Black Philadelphians. And the largest neighborhood was um, in what now is called South Philadelphia, what then was the Seventh Ward, although I'm sure they've redrawn the lines on the map. It wasn't, though, a Black neighborhood. Um, it was a multi-ethnic, multi-racial neighborhood. Segregation in many American cities outside of the South emerged in the 20th century, as opposed to in the late 19th. And so although racism was pervasive, there was no sort of black ghetto per se. Uh, Fletcher's family lived, as we know from census records, on the same streets as 
Italian immigrants and East European Jewish immigrants and Irish immigrants, as well as native born people of European ancestry, but working class. Although there would have been rich folks in there too. And just walking around the Philadelphia, you can see some very nice houses still um, across Center City, as it sometimes is now called. And so Fletcher was a typical, actually, young black man, uh, working class in multiple jobs. But one of those jobs he would have gotten was walking just a half mile or a mile um, east to the Delaware River um, to get a ship, right, to load and unload cargo from uh, because Philadelphia was the third biggest city in the country um, and uh, maybe the fifth busiest port. And so there would have been thousands of men, and at that time, all men, um, who would have loaded and unloaded ships by the job, meaning casual labor or day labor. And so he would have been born in 1890. He would have been around 15 years old when the IWW was founded in 1905. So when did Ben Fletcher start becoming involved in IWW organizing? And, and like, how did he even gravitate towards it? Do we know that about him? Sadly, and as so many other aspects of his life, the knowledge that I have is limited. So he uh, probably joined the IWW around 1910. The IWW, um, as you noted, was founded in Chicago in 1905. But um, I believe the first IWW locals are chartered in Philadelphia in 1907. Pretty quick because Philadelphia is this bustling industrial city um, with tons of European immigrants. Textiles actually was the largest industry in the city, but also a lot of metalwork. Um, so Hungarians, Italians, those sorts of folks, Jewish um, needle trades, etc. Fletcher, I surmise, probably learned about the IWW from walking down the street, um, because at that time, street box soapbox orators were the way that in working class communities that all sorts of people would reach crowds. This is before radio, TV, the internet, right? Um, mass communication is print only. And they would have probably also had pamphlets and newspapers to hand out or to sell. And so it's very likely, if not certain, that Fletcher would have been walking down the street, maybe actually towards the river to get a job and heard someone speak. And maybe he didn't stop the first time, but maybe the second or the third time he did and then started to listen to. And as an African-American, he didn't have to be told that the system wasn't very fair as a working class or poor person. So same thing. And so it's very reasonable to conclude that he would have been open to radical ideas because the system simply failed, right, African-Americans and most working class urban residents. But we do know that he became a soapbox speaker himself. Right. And uh, so 1911, 1912, he probably also joined the Socialist Party of America in that time and very probably dropped out soon thereafter, although he stuck with the Wobblies, you know, but in IWW newspapers, he's already sort of being praised in 1912 in about speaking in Philadelphia, but also downriver just a few miles in Chester, Pennsylvania. I also want to note that he most likely was when he's being praised for his street speaking in Philadelphia and in Chester he's most likely speaking to predominantly white audiences because that was the city. But also the Wobblies didn't have a lot of African-American members yet. Um, it was only because of Fletcher and then organizing the dock workers that thousands of African-Americans joined, right? And so he already had experience speaking to non-Black audiences, uh, which would be useful because ultimately he helped form a union on the waterfront that was majority white at first. And so... That also suggests he probably was a great speaker. All accounts suggest that because he would have maybe had a harder time um, convincing native-born white or European immigrants um, than he might with African-Americans because race was as pervasive in Philadelphia in the American 1912 as it is in 2020. 
That's really interesting. So the union that you're mentioning there that he would go on to help found was Local 8, famous local in the IWW, extremely powerful union. I didn't realize until you just said it that it was majority white to start with, but that was not the case over the history of Local 8. It was a market example of an interracial union. Can you talk a little bit about Local 8, but also as you're talking about Ben Fletcher and his ability to talk to white audiences, to white workers, I wonder if you could describe a little bit about his politics on this subject as well, because he seemed to really have like a class struggle politics and believe that unions were a vehicle for accomplishing interracial equality and racial uplift in general. So hand it off to you. Of course. So Fletcher was was a wobbly before he was a leader of this union that came to be known as Local 8. And so he already was a believer in the cause. And so we have to understand the IWW, right? Um, so anti-capitalist from its birth, um, founded in Chicago by socialists and other radicals who rejected the American Federation of Labor, which was the mainstream labor movement uh, in, in the early 20th century, which predominantly was white men of native-born birth and in the so-called skilled trades. And the AFL intentionally didn't art organize women, African-Americans, many European immigrants, no Asian immigrants, almost no sort of Mexican and other Latino immigrants, and so-called unskilled workers. So the AFL intentionally chose not to organize most workers and was basically, you know, accepted capitalism. So they want to raise, they want safer conditions. Those are all important. But like, there was no politics really deeper. The IWW was founded by people like Mother Jones, by Lucy Parsons, um, by Big Bill Haywood, by Eugene Debs, as really being a socialist labor federation, intentionally internationalist from its inception. Because in fact, there was a discussion about what to name the union and Industrial Workers of America was proposed, and that was rejected in favor of Industrial Workers of the World. Um, there were non-Americans present in 1905 in Chicago, some Canadians, maybe a Spanish person or two, a German. And it's noteworthy that in 1905, they said, no, capitalism is global. Therefore, the fight against it um, is global. We are still going to represent workers in sort of unions in order to, say, fight for higher wages, better conditions, et cetera. We're not going to sign any contracts because the greatest power of workers is to strike or to threaten to strike. And most contracts have a no-strike clause. And so class struggle as at the heart and workplace-centered as opposed to electoral politics, which was one reason that the Socialist Party and the IWW sort of parted ways within a decade, is that the Socialist Party was what now we would call social democracy or democratic socialism really sort of promoted an electoral approach, um, whereas the IWW and other more anarchistic um, sorts of unions or sometimes called anarcho-syndicalist were rejected electoral um, approaches, believing that that would, was a path towards failure and reform only. So Fletcher very much embraced all that, right? He was not a theoretician and he didn't write long treatises on IWW views, but based on his speeches, as well as based on his private correspondence and what we know, he accepted and embraced all of that. The last point I'll make about Fletcher is, as I mean, he was African-American, is that the IWW from its inception was anti-racist, anti-xenophobic, anti-sexist. Uh, it actively sought to organize workers of, of so-called marginalized groups that had been ignored by the labor movement, but also ignored by most American institutions. And so that might 
B. Y. Fletcher found the IWW attractive, of course, but he uh, wasn't only thinking about organizing black workers, but he very much wanted to organize in an interracial, multi-ethnic setting. And Local 8, the union that he helped lead from its birth, was in 1913, when it was born out of a, a two-week successful strike, was approximately one-third African-American, and probably approximately one-third Irish and Irish-American, and approximately one-third European immigrants. During World War I, it became uh, it transitioned to becoming maybe a little over a majority African-American um, as the Great Migration picked up uh, as war work changed conditions. And so essentially, um, by the late 19-teens, Local 8 was majority Black, but it always, from its birth, was heavily Black, if not majority Black. And the city never has been majority Black, um, uh, to my knowledge, although I, 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 could be, I could have misspoken about maybe 1960 or 1970 Philadelphia, but it definitely was not in the era of Local 8, you know. But Philadelphia did have the largest Black population outside of the South in 1900, right? And so it was a place with a significant and old Black community. I love one of the stories that you retell in the book about Philadelphia and Local 8 and how, like you said, they were founded on a two-week strike on their fourth year anniversary celebrating the strike. They didn't go to work and instead organized this massive rally and march through the streets of Point Breeze, which is where I currently live. And just, just reading it and reading how they're chanting through the streets an injury to one is an injury to all thousands of people. Point Breeze, like if you've been to Point Breeze, the streets are tiny. They're tight. <laughs> like if there's a thousand people walking down my street, there's no way I wouldn't see it. And it's just very powerful and moving. So I, I just want to kind of remark on how much that really resonated with me and how moving it was to read it, but also ask you to kind of provide a little bit more of the details of the backdrop of the city at that time and how Local 8 was able to gain so much power as a union based on their location in Philadelphia and the great organizing skills of people like Ben Fletcher. Yeah, well, so Philadelphia is an old city for the U.S. And so it's, you know, platted out in the 16, late 1600s and um, grows in the 1700s, but it's pretty small between the Delaware River to the east and the Schuylkill to the west. Although then West Philly sort of is on to the west side of the Schuylkill River, a Dutch word that, uh, you know, you've, it's two miles, right? Like, uh, so it's a pretty small city, right? And then it grows north-south. But most of the work is on the Delaware, which is the bigger river, but there is plenty of work to the western part of the old city, which is toward, uh, Point Breeze area and towards um, the Schuylkill River, right? And there's also all these huge railroad yards. Um, because it's a big industrial city, lots of factories, some of which still stand, even though few of which produce the goods that they used to. The uh, whole areas were basically centered around right, in industry, right, like, and working class people living in tight quarters. And again, an old city, these sort of two-story row houses in New York and Boston, we often think of three-story, but actually all of the southern half of Philadelphia, tons of it are these two-story row houses, right, like narrow streets, like you said, you know, and this has been this way. And, and so these are working class communities, multi-ethnic. I like to think about also William Z. Foster, um, who was a wobbly and then became a leader in the Communist Party. He also grew up in Philadelphia in this a little earlier, but he writes about in his memoir about witnessing as a child a strike in 1895, a streetcar strike in his place and how that was very sort of instrumental. And so the same way you talk about Local 8 doing these marches, they would take, they would basically take the day off to celebrate their annual birthday, which was a birth out of a strike day. 
right? Like, uh, and of course they didn't ask employers for this. They actually told employers we would not go to work and employers said, well, we'll fire you. And, but if no one shows up for work, well, of course, what happened by the afternoon, employers are saying, well, will you work this afternoon? Because we have some work. And so, you know, local eight sort of, uh, that's all very direct action, right? Is another term, right? That they would enforce their power through um, work. Now they would negotiate, but only oral contracts with the sort of uh, the union. I'd also mention as far as sort of this community. So during strikes, there's no strike funds. The Wobblies um, have very low dues. The members themselves are not wealthy. Leaders in the union um, by rule can't be paid any more than people who work in the occupations, right? Like, and so, you know, during strikes, everyone's basically in debt. And so it would be small businesses who are often members of the same ethnic and racial and neighborhood communities would extend credit. That would have been the norm. And Fletcher actually, in one of his correspondence, uh, sort of recalling a, a bigger strike in 1920, talks about how throughout the neighborhoods, there would have been support for the strikers. Of course, if you've got three, four, five thousand men, again, all men working in this union, and you think about that every one of these people might support four, five, six people with their wages. You've, you, then you've got 20,000 people, right? And then you've, you've got their families, you've got their friends, right? And so they would have sort of impacted in a direct ways, like huge swaths, right? Like, a, and so when they do their marches, when they have public events, these would have been not some small affairs, right? Like uh, they um, often would have been actually quite mighty and, and, and themselves sort of serve as educational, right? To non bobbies who is this group of people? And geez, here they are marching. And even if maybe a march is not uncommon, it is noteworthy that this would have been a very sort of ethnically and racially diverse lot of people. And many of the Europeans wouldn't have known English um, well. And so at their big parades, but also even at their meetings, there would often be sort of people who would speak in multiple languages. So an English speaker, and then it might be translated or just a separate speech given in Italian, then another one in Polish, right? Like, um, and so when you see sometimes the descriptions of events, it would, it would not be uncommon for them to name the, the different people who spoke in different languages, right? Like uh, that, of course, slows things down, but, you know, it's also part of the atmosphere. And everyone would have come to appreciate over time, we think, that these people have different um, sort of cultures, right, to offer. But I'm not saying that all these people are sort of perfect, um, loving people for everyone, far from it. We can determine through their actions how they acted. What people were thinking, we can only guess, right? Like, I mean, I can tell you what Ben Fletcher was thinking because he sometimes wrote stuff down. But, and some of these people were later interviewed or whatnot, but it, I hesitate to sort of speak on behalf of 5,000 men, but we do know what they did. We know that they abolished the casual labor system called the shape-up that was this oppressive hiring system um, that also divided workers based on race. Um, we know they integrated the gangs because workers worked in, in groups of 20, say, often five or six gangs on a ship. And we know that employers would play Polish, Italian, Irish, Jewish, black gangs off each other in order to increase productivity, but also to weaken workers, right? We know they abolished uh, sort of segregated gangs, right? We know they did this without asking. We know they did this without a legal contract. They essentially imposed integration from below, I say, in ways that are indicative of the politics, right? Um, lowercase p of the IWW, not just of Local 8, but it is, uh, and it's not the only place where, in fact, the IWW instantly did things that were against the norm in terms of ethnicity and race and separation of those groups, right? And so, and, and we also know that 
Fletcher wasn't alone. There were other important leaders, but that Fletcher was at the time in the local and national press praised as being essentially the most important leader of this union. So one thing that comes up is that the contemporary labor movement, I, I usually refer to it as organized labor because I think that when people talk about the labor movement, they're usually just talking about business unions, mainstream unionism. They're not super good at these multiracial, multi-ethnic organizations. Like there's still a lot, there's, you know, things to be said that are noteworthy, but also there's a lot to be learned, I think, from these histories. And it reminds me of a, a recent article that Micah Utrich wrote about Mike Davis, where there's a, one quote that's pulled out of it that seems very pertinent to this conversation. Was Mike Davis described early 20th century labor organizers as more like gardeners? Not that they didn't get on soapboxes and like speak to people and kind of rally the, the troops, so to speak, but that they were more capable at being like a gardener, de-weeding the soil of like petty disputes and antagonisms between workers and trying to de-weed that, you know, those divisions, those social divisions in the workplace so that a greater organization could bloom. It sounds like this is what the IWW, the local eight in practice was doing. So can you, can you talk more about that? Like, what did the local look like? Like, what did their governance structure look like? What did their leadership look like? How involved was Ben Fletcher in that? How much did he help mentor other leaders? Yeah, well, I mean, I also should say I'm a member of a union, the American Federation of Teachers, and I'm happy to criticize my and other unions in our time. They are, in terms of ethnicity, race, and nationality, much better than they were uh, in the early 20th century and much better than they were in the 70s. I mean, and so, like, even after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, the dock workers union representing people on the East and Gulf Coast had to be forced to integrate by basically progressives and blacks um, who were suing sometimes, right, to sort of basically get them to comply with the law. And that Local 8 did this sort of 50 years before the Civil Rights Act. And 50 years before, most unions sort of um, had to be sort of pushed and pulled, some more than others, right? Like uh, there were some progressive unions, but there was definitely some resisting. So how did Local 8 did it, do it differently? So again, they're born in 1913. We know that they quickly ended the shape up, the system of hiring that instead workers would be go to the hall um, on 121 Catherine Street in South Philadelphia, close to the river, the Delaware River's then there's Delaware Avenue, then there's First Street, then there's Second Street. So it's between First and Second, right? Like, uh, and so close to the river, right, where uh, it used to be that you'd have to go to different piers. And if you're lucky, get picked. Or if you're willing to pay a bribe, get picked. Now, the bosses would have to call the union and the union itself would dispatch, right? And it's not going to dispatch an all black gang and an all Italian gang. Instead, it's actually dispatching sort of multi-ethnic, multi-racial groups. We don't know, and we don't have photographs, and we don't have details about these things. So, you know, some of this is all anecdotal, unfortunately. We know that they intentionally and uh, sort of by maybe local bylaws required sort of elected leaders and leaders who were selected to run meetings would have been sometimes nicknamed checkerboard, meaning black and white. And so they they didn't assume that numbers would result in maybe a certain group of people having someone to elect, right? Instead, they mandated, right? We know that, um, as was the case in IWW locals around the country and beyond, that they were highly suspicious of union leaders who were distinct from and separate from and often over time sort of better than in their view than the rank and file. So they basically prevented that by requiring annual elections. 
And so Fletcher sometimes was in elected office, but actually sometimes he wasn't because by law, he wouldn't have been allowed to serve, say, in leadership ranks. And that, of course, the effect of that is that it might weaken. But it, another way to think about it is that it actually builds more leaders. And when during 19, World War I, 1917, 18 for the U.S., when the leaders, including Fletcher, are imprisoned, right, like this actually fortunate, right, that Oakland has developed cadres of second and third tier leaders, including other African-Americans. So, uh, you know, we know that they also would have held across, and this again is not unique to local eight, you know, union halls were places of sociability, right? There were were libraries. Um, There were places that the union would have newspaper, magazines, and books. A lot of workers had downtime when they didn't have ships. Um, And so, um, you know, you'd get together to see friends, you'd get together to find a job, you'd get together to organize, you'd get together to to borrow a book, right? You'd get together maybe if you didn't have something else to do. And that these were sort of, would have been very interesting places as opposed to nowadays where there are union halls that are essentially very, very quiet, except for meetings. And maybe it depends on the union and how they operate, right? Like, but for certain moments, whereas union halls, not just the IWW, right? Union halls generally would have been actually more vibrant places. There probably also would have been drinking happening there and often alcohol would be served, right? Like there'd be a bar. I can't say that for local eight, but I've been in other union places where there's a bar on site, like uh, like a VFW or an American Legion hall. And these also would have been sort of, again, sort of ethnic groups, political groups would have peppered, right? South Philly, and you can still see when you walk the streets of cities, as a lot of us like to do, and you can see the old sort of names on buildings sometimes in other languages. And, you know, so in Philadelphia, there was like the Lithuanian Socialist Federation, right? Like, uh, and other such groups. Local aid, of course, being anti-capitalist, didn't own its property, so it rented, right? And so it, it, it sort of had the second floor of a hall above a garage, I think. We also know that they held educational forums, right? And so one of the most interesting ones is from 1921. Um, after the Tulsa race massacre, um, when 300 black men and women were killed in Oklahoma, they held a forum, right? And they talked about it. And luckily, this was reported on by A. Philip Randolph and Chandler Owens magazine, The Messenger, where it talks about how white and black members of Local 8 rejected the idea of white supremacy, the uh, sort of seeing basically the sort of the Klan and, and sort of race sort of riots, which are really sort of massacres as being ways to divide white workers from other workers. And they also rejected Garveyism, Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was really sort of a incredibly strong and impressive black nationalist organization, but also advocated for separatism, right? Separate black businesses, basically that white people would never be able to sort of overcome their racism. And so we have to just get out of here. It's understanding the appeal of that by African-Americans, but Fletcher and Wobblies, like Fletcher, would have rejected that too, because they... Um, didn't see sort of Black-only places as being viable in the U.S., where 12% of the people are African-American, or for that matter, their vision of, you know, a socialist world was very different than, than sort of simply Africa for Africans, which is what Garvey was calling for, as, as appropriate as that might be as sort of a claim to get rid of European empire. And so, you know, the politics of this era is sort of fascinating to sort of inject local aid into. Again, remembering also that the Ku Klux Klan has several million members in the late 19-teens and early 1920s, and so vicious racism, and that there was huge amounts of immigration, right? Um, although that had slowed during World War I, and then after World War I, Congress will basically prevent 
um, a return to pre-war levels of immigration. So there's also sort of growing xenophobia. And so you've got all these cross currents. In addition, of course, the more normal ones, you might say, of employers simply seeking to sort of extract maximum profit by working people as fast as they could and paying them as little as they could, right? And so you've got this teeming city, right, um, with a lot of different groups of people, um, Philadelphia being not so different than Cleveland, right, or Milwaukee, right, or Baltimore, other industrial cities of this era, even though every place is different. And one could argue that Philadelphia is actually more racist than most, you know, although that's a sort of a losing battle, right? Like, uh, but you, there's plenty of things to point to the sort of the hard times that Black Philadelphians experienced. But several thousand African-Americans were members of Local 8, and they presumably were among the best played working class Black men in their city, right? Like, uh, which is why so many wanted to join. And we could imagine started to get educated within it, because most of those Black men probably had come from the South and probably had no industrial or union experience before entering, right, this occupation and this union. They suddenly learned, however, that for the first times maybe in their lives, that there were some white people who weren't so hateful, right? And so it's also hard to imagine, yet possible, going African-Americans coming up from Maryland or Virginia and going, well, who are these white guys who actually are treating me and calling me fellow worker, right? And then working with me and actually fighting alongside me and how powerful that might have been for both sides, right? And so these, again, are things we can only imagine actually were happening, right? Um, which is so exciting to think about. And Local 8 essentially controlled this industry for a decade almost, right? Um, which is relatively durable and long standing. So there's a lot of things I want to follow up on there, but maybe we come back to some of them. In particular, I'm just so struck by the differences of how Local 8 did internal unionizing and democracy, that would be total anathema to today's mainstream labor movement. So we could talk about that a little bit. But um, what you just said about Local 8 being durable for about 10 years, a powerful union, high membership, probably one of the highest memberships in the entire IWW, if I'm not incorrect there. I want to talk about that. How was Local 8 able to be so durable in contrast to other IWW branches? Because as you mentioned in your book itself, Membership in the IWW was very transient. People constantly were coming and going in other chapters, and there wasn't much of a foothold for particular IWW branches that Local 8 was able to accomplish. So what made Local 8 the kind of beacon of hope and uh, the, the best player in terms of the IWW at large? Yeah, well, that's really important stuff. Uh, you know, we have to keep in mind that millions of men and to a lesser extent, working class women were migratory. Lots of occupations were sort of seasonal, and it was common uh, for working class men to sort of move around the country or the regions based on the time of year and the work that you could find. That makes it hard to establish sort of durable locals, right? Like, because, okay, you work in agriculture, but you're only there for a month or two, and then you move on to some other place, right? Like, uh, how do you, from the institutional side, make that work? That's not easy. Also, because the union always envisioned itself as revolutionary, they wanted maximum membership which meant they kept their dues very low. But that also meant that, well, if you didn't pay your dues for a couple of months, well, who cares, right? You don't have to pay them up again, right? Or you're on the move and you could sort of just rejoin some other place. And so the IWW, by wanting to be revolutionary, in some ways made it harder to sort of organize, uh, you know, for the bread and butter stuff. And there's also sort of the sort of reality that, um, you know, a lot of people just didn't have the money to necessarily sort of maintain their sort of memberships if you're out of work or if you don't have enough money, right? And so 
you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating because there's like, how many people were in the IWW? And the truth is no one knows in their heyday, compounded by the fact that the federal government confiscated records from around offices around the country and its central headquarters in Chicago and very likely destroyed a lot of them in the 20s. And so unfortunately, even uh, a lot of this is guesswork. We know that, for instance, the IWW was very um, sort of famous for sort of glorious strikes, but then sort of what happens afterwards, right? Like, so in 1912 in Lawrence, Massachusetts, the famous Bread and Roses strike, 25,000 people, thousands joined the IWW. So maybe it was larger, right, um, for a few months in then, say, Philadelphia later became on the waterfront. But we know that most of those people drained away. And so the IWW, for all the credit it may deserve in sort of forwarding provocative and, and sort of valuable ideas, often was unable to sort of maintain the sorts of um, longer term, durable organizations that really working people need. I mean, because before the revolution, well, I need a raise. Um, before the revolution, I need steady work. I want a shorter workday. So Local 8 was simultaneously sometimes praised, uh, in my opinion, deservedly so for being radical in its anti-racism, but sometimes was criticized for being too conservative within the IWW. Um, for focusing on those short-term gains? And the answer is, well, it depends on who's correcting the exam. Because Local 8 was um, also, for instance, loaded goods for the war, right? Like, uh, I mean, well, that's what dock workers do. They load ships when they're told to load ships. And in 1917 and 18, a lot of those ships were leaving Philadelphia for France, right? Like uh, where the U.S. was joined the uh, British and the French in fighting against the Germans. So are they bad socialists for delivering goods that are going to kill German workers. Well, French and British socialists also had abandoned internationalism famously in 1914 and supported their national efforts. Not to say that's acceptable, but just sort of mindful that World War I was incredibly hard on the international socialist movement <laughs> mm -hmm. and most failed uh, to sort of live up to this internationalist. There were no strikes in America against the war. There were actually in a few other countries, Australia, there was this massive effort against conscription, right? For example, that the IWW was a leader in, right? And so in another country where the IWW was influential, they were very involved in the anti-war movement. But in Philadelphia, specifically, they didn't, right? Like uh, they actually registered for the army because that was the law. They worked ships, no doubt, many of which were loading weapons. Well, so are they radical? Yes, um, they were sort of doing what few other workers are doing in terms of organizing across race and national. Were they conservative? They were sort of typical, right? Like they just did their jobs. I always say that what Fred Thompson, a famous wobbly historian, would write about is like, well, you need short and long-term right, games here. And that, you know, the long-term game for the IWW might be socialism, but the short term, it's how do we get more members? And well, we need to sort of explain to them why they should join a union. And it's like, well, we can sort of push the boss and we can make more money and have a safer workplace, right? Um, and so like the radicalism of the uh, IWW and Local 8 is one thing. The conservatism actually also is perhaps necessary. Conservative might not be the right word, but the sort of more practical, short-term material issues, right? That we all sort of need to think about, right? So during COVID, well, I want to work at home, right? I'm glad my union fought for that benefit from my university. In the long term, I want more, right? Like, uh, but in the short term, those are the sort of the pragmatic gains. Local 8 was able to do that what many other IWW locals were unable to do in those regards. Is that to its credit or sort of, is that actually part of the reason the IWW wasn't more successful at revolution? 
uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a debate, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so like we all, that's the exciting thing about history is that we all can interpret for ourselves the evidence that we have. And so my book actually is predominantly first person primary sources from the era so that readers could, in fact, decide. And, and, and there's a number of situations where the local eight is at odds with the, the national in which it's considered to be too conservative, for instance, in trying to protect the existing labor surp, uh, members from a labor surplus. And that's understandable. You could actually understand both sides right, of that debate. And well, modern organizers, I think, should be considering these historical examples, right? That's actually a big thing when you quoted Howard Zinn earlier. I appreciated that because that's the way I sort of see this history as useful, is for us to think about um, how in the 2020s, is there something that we can take from, from this, uh, this history? Yeah, I want to talk about that too. And like what you're saying is these, these arguments, these debates are very ripe today too. Like uh, uh, Kim Moody talks about modern business unions as basically being interested in the self-preservation of their private welfare system for members, right? Because there's not a social welfare system that the government's providing. So the best the unions can do is preserve a private social welfare system that their employers provide. And Moody's very critical of this. And I think there's a lot of reasons to be critical. But if you're organizing in the labor movement today, you're kind of like, what the hell are you supposed to do? You know, these are tough questions. I don't think that there's easy answers to them. And it seems like they're all, they're very live in this history you're talking about too. And also what you're kind of getting to gets us to some of the decline of Local 8. And I think you're about to start talking about what's called the Philadelphia controversy. So can we start talking about that? Like, what was the Philadelphia controversy? How did Local 8 start declining in power uh, as a labor organization? And we would be remiss not to mention that they had rivals, right? Like they had beef with the Communist Party and the ILA. So there, there's a lot there. Take it as you can. The sort of decline of Local 8 happens not overnight, but happens actually over a series of years. And there's a number of forces which you've named in addition to some others. And I'll, I'll just name those two others, which maybe we'll come back to. One, of course, is employers never liked Local 8. And employers over time, shipping companies, which are global, increasingly became more powerful. So instead of local employers, sort of national or international employers, who very much couldn't wait to sort of use the war, and then the post-war sort of campaigns to sort of beat down the union. The federal government, and also local and state governments also were enormously important in the demise of local aid, as well as the IWW in the US and other countries. Fletcher, and five other Philadelphia leaders were arrested in 1917-18 and then were part of this mass trial in Chicago in 1918 that sent six of them and a hundred other Wobblies to federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas, right? Um, and hundreds of other Wobblies imprisoned in other state and federal and local cases, thousands of Wobblies actually. And so the, the Red Scare first target was the IWW, right? Literally, Congress passes the Espionage Act in the spring of 1917 by late May, Fletcher, and I assume many other lobbies, are already under surveillance less than two months after the war begins, before they could have possibly done anything to undermine the war effort, right? They're, they're essentially, as soon as the tools were given to the Bureau of Investigation, they started to use them to attack. And so um, Fletcher is in prison, right, um, in 1918, 1919, into 1920, when other forces also add themselves to the list. Rising racism and xenophobia, which even though those are outside forces, can't help but sort of pull apart members, right, who are pulled 
by various other communities, um, maybe neighbors and friends and family, who knows. But the Klan was big in eastern Pennsylvania. We know that. Were there local eight members? Well, maybe not. Um, but it was around, right? And The Birth of a Nation, uh, this racist film that was um, launched, relaunched the KKK, was um, the most popular film of that era. And, and we know the local NAACP in Philadelphia picketed or outside of movie theaters in Philadelphia to protest the showing of this film as they did in other cities. And so we're also mindful that racism and xenophobia are out there, right? We've got sort of this post-World War I sort of open shop campaign that really employers form these powerful organizations to sort of basically go after unions that had been somewhat empowered by the war, which resulted in labor shortages, but also workers were necessary for the war effort, just like in World War II. And we've got um, the AFL's union, the rival International Longshoremen's Association that you named earlier, that controlled some parts of the workforce in most other American port cities, but not Philadelphia, because the IWW had essentially been able to sort of organize there, right? And the ILA generally included Blacks, but generally segregated them into so-called Jim Crow locals. So relatively better than some other unions, but far worse than the IWW in terms of its race politics. And the birth of the Soviet Union, which the IWW at first was thrilled at, as were leftists around the world in 1917 and 18, right? Um, the birth of the first socialist country. As communist parties started to form in various countries outside of the Soviet Union after World War I, you know, these are small organizations, often really sort of Russian immigrants and some others. And then they want to start to recruit in their new countries. And the IWW was very clearly the most important, largest, most radical anti-capitalist institution in the U.S. in the World War I era, right? And so naturally, the communists wanted to basically bring the IWW into its fold and in other countries too, right? Um, and the similar things were happening in other countries. What did the IWW do? Well, at first, I said, um, there was praise for the Soviet Union. But by 1919, 1920, there is actually a lot of uncertainty about the Soviet project. Um, that Lenin was leading, right, including repression against anti-Soviet or anti-communist leftists, particularly anarchists. I'm really thinking about the Soviet Union in Europe, but like the similar things are happening in the U.S. And the story is, uh, sort of comes out in August of 1920 that members of Local 8 were loading weapons for anti-Soviet forces. Um, we know the United States was actually actively supporting with military supplies anti-communist forces. Um, that wanted to overthrow the new Soviet nation. We also know other European powers were doing the same thing, right? The British, the French, et cetera. Were they loading weapons for the Soviet Union in Philadelphia? That actually is unknown. But when the charge was leveled, right, within days, the, un the local eight was suspended from the IWW because they had betrayed the class, right? Betrayed the working class and the socialist revolutionary cause. To my knowledge, there is no evidence that they actually did so. And, and members of local eight, including Ben Fletcher, repeatedly denied the charge. But the charge was leveled. The national organization quickly, basically, without waiting even for a sort of a response, suspended Local 8. Later, a few months later, essentially lifted the suspension, um, only to suspend them again for a second reason separate from Soviet issues. But like Fletcher maintained, and he was there and I wasn't, that this was a communist plot, that the communists already by the summer of 1920 were unable to sort of convince most Wobblies to join and most Wobbly affiliates to join the Communist International, which was called 
the Comintern, the Communist International, right, which the Soviet Union was trying to create a, a global communist movement with it at the center. You know, but there was suspicion. Many f- joined, individual lobbies did join, right? Big Bill Haywood, of course, jumped bail, right, and sort of moved to the Soviet Union around this time. But most lobbies um, kept the Soviet Union and communists at arm's length and believed that that sort of party approach, this top-down approach, this sort of non-workplace approach, this less anarchistic approach, this statist approach was the wrong approach. And so even though the flirtation began very favorably, even by 1920, we see the IWW refusing to affiliate with the Communist International when the Soviets create the Red International of Labor Unions, the Profintern a few years later to try to appeal these sort of leftist unions. They also refused to join. Lenin, we know, wrote a book called An Infantile Disorder, Left-Wing Communism, right? Basically criticizing European lefties who refused to join the Soviet movement. That summer of 20 is exactly when this charge is leveled against Philadelphia's dock workers. Is this part of essentially an, uh, an effort on the part of New York communists to sort of, if you can't get the IWW to sort of disrupt them? Maybe. It's definitely possible. But even that evidence is not certain. But we know that this weakened Local 8, already weakened by sort of repression of the government, employer counteroffensive, ILA rivalries, racism, xenophobia, that they'll actually hold on to the waterfront really for another few years. But we can sort of see in retrospect, we can trace this decline in this power. And so I, um, this is already sort of in the weeds for maybe some people. I wrote a chapter in my book, Wobblies on the Waterfront, on this and have written a few other things since because it's interesting, it's important. But for some people, this is not really what they're interested in Ben Fletcher about. They want to talk about the anti-racist Black-led unionism, and I do too. But I also want to sort of put into the conversation like, well, there's, you know, divisions on the left. There's a long history of this in the U.S. and across the world sectarianism that has often hurt the left. And the so-called popular front era in the mid-30s through the end of World War II, when the communists basically played nice with other lefties, was a rare time. But uh, essentially, by the, already by the mid-20s, the IWW had declined, and the Communist Party was still small, but was growing. And we know in retrospect, will become the dominant trend on the left worldwide for the rest of the 20th century. And so as we also know in the US, the communists were very good on race issues also. And in the 30s in particular, were organizing many black workers as well as defending black um, victims of Jim Crow in the South, like in the Scottsboro case, et cetera. Right? And so I'm not meaning to be anti-communist per se. Sometimes people jump on me for not being pro-communist enough. But, uh, you know, like the Wobblies and the communists had falling out. And, and that, that sort of the same sorts of things later happened in Spain famously in the 30s, right, um, that George Orwell and many others write about. And so we see the beginnings of that, actually, in the Philadelphia controversy in the summer of 1920. It's actually one of the first instances in the U.S. of this sort of left sectarianism that really hurts the movement, broader speaking. I totally hear what you're saying, too, that we don't want to focus and magnify too much this particular part of the history. But I do think it's important to know, like, what led to the decline of Local 8 and how it manifested internal divisions of the IWW itself. Because as we were talking about the Philadelphia controversy, one aspect of that was the charge that Local 8 was delivering munitions, war materials to anti-Bolshevik forces to the whites in the Soviet Union. But the other part of it was Local 8's high initiation fees to try to preserve like a smaller labor pool and focus on bread and butter unionism 
that, well, that's what the critics called it, bread and butter unionism. And you could see that the IWW itself internal was starting to just really split apart. So it's just good to know. Yeah. And really in the early 20s, these sorts of battles in the IWW continued, right, in, in over what was referred to internally as centralization. How much control does the local have or a local have versus the national? And, you know, there was regional divisions. There's, uh, this ultimately sort of comes to a head in 1924 in the U.S., but these are similar debates happening in other countries and still today, right? Like, um, in terms of organizational tactics, Philadelphia Local 8 members like Fletcher and others, leaders, said that, you know, maintaining a higher labor, uh, excuse me, dues, um, which they raised during the war um, and sh actually shortly after the war, was because um, labor surplus was the first way to sort of basically destroy the union, right? If people can flood the union, people can't get enough work, right? Um, so if 10,000 people instead of 4,000 people are sort of in the union, then no one can get by, right? And that sort of closing the labor surplus was a key, especially in certain industries like this, where it's basically unskilled labor that most people could do, even if those with experience can do it better. And so, you know, you can understand the need for, um, you know, holding on to sort of local power on over waterfront workers. You can also understand the critique that, well, what's our purpose here? Are we just trying to sort of make more money today or tomorrow? Or we also actually have much larger vision? And the answer is both. They didn't resolve this problem, right? Local 8, though, was brought back into the union after they agreed to lower their dues and was able to survive a bit longer. But that's sort of, in retrospect, yeah, is sort of a clear example of the sorts of divisions that continue to undermine the IWW nationally, on top of the fact that Really, it's several hundred of his best leaders were still dealing with prison. And so if your best leaders, um, or at least your leaders, are out of the game, are others able to step into those voids? Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. Well, and that included Ben Fletcher. He's in Leavenworth, right? Like uh, he's, and, and even when he gets out on bond and then sort of later his sentence uh, sort of reduced to time served, he can go back to prison if, he commit, if he's charged with another crime. He's pardoned outright um, in, in, in 1933 by FDR, as were other Wobblies, a decade later. Right? Like, uh, but, so you've got that hanging over you. He and other Wobblies, many of them, continued when they got back to their home places to organize in some capacities. Not as much. Right? Um, and we don't know why necessarily. Right? Um, although we could surmise that they might be concerned uh, about being arrested again and throwing back into federal prison again. That would have been no pleasure for sure. That's what I wanted to bring us to also was the later years of Ben Fletcher. It's weird to say the later years because Ben Fletcher died very young. He was 59 when he died. And actually reading this account of his life and the organizing, and, and we should say too, he wasn't just organizing in Philadelphia. That was his primary home, but he was often asked to go to other cities, other places to help get like new unions going and had successes there too. But he puts me to shame. Like this guy was doing this all in his 20s. <laughs> what the hell was I doing in my right. 20s? But let's talk about his later years. So, you know, the decline of Local 8, Ben Fletcher began trying to form a different independent union at one point. He still maintained IWW membership, but it seems like his activity in his later years, his so-called later years, was um, a little less. So can you talk more about that? Like what happened to him after Local 8's demise? Of course, I'm happy to. You know, by the mid-20s, um, the documentary evidence reduces in uh, amount, right? Like, and so we have to sort of piece together with gaps, bigger gaps, unfortunately. Right. Um, he's still living in Philadelphia through the 20s. He had gotten married actually during the war and divorced somewhere along the way. Right. Like uh, he often was uh, his family still lived in Philadelphia. 
It's not clear if he was working on the waterfront or some other occupation. We do know that he continued to sort of be a, a popular speaker um, and occasionally would travel. He had traveled during the 19-teens to Boston, Providence, New York, Baltimore, Norfolk, where he was almost lynched for his organizing. But after the war, well, he shows up occasionally. He gives, uh, you know, he shows up in Michigan and Canada in 1927 as part of a speaking tour. Did he do more of those? Probably. For every one we've got evidence for, it's reasonable to conclude there's at least one or several that don't, right? Um, as far as I know, it's the only time he left the country, though, uh, when he was in Canada, where there's evidence of him speaking at a number of places that were especially Finnish-Canadian strongholds, because Finnish immigrants to the U.S. and Canada were particularly likely to be lefties. And so that's sort of interesting. We know he moved to New York in the early 30s. He gives his most... Um, Really, the, the sort of the most extensive interview in the book is from uh, the Amsterdam News, a black newspaper in Harlem, right, in 1931. We know he continues to give speeches because people comment about his brilliant speeches, right, in the early and mid-30s um, in New York on behalf of the Harlan County uh, coal miners in Kentucky and other places, right, in New York City, right? Uh, he probably lives in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, which became more black than it was in the 30s. He actually lived in the same neighborhood with some other former Local 8 members um, who were white, um, who were European immigrants who lived in his neighborhood. Um, and he married again a Black woman named Clara, right, um, who was a nurse, maybe. We also know that Fletcher had a bad stroke in the mid-30s, and he complained about other health issues in some of his letters to friends. And so I presume that actually the last 15 years of his life, a quarter of his life, he probably was in poor health. He probably only occasionally had work. And he probably was supported materially by his wife. And we also know he had friends, he, that he hung out with Wobblies, right? Um, that many of them showed up at his funeral in Brooklyn in 1949, right? Um, some of his best friends included Sam and Esther Dolga, famous Jewish anarchists um, who are also Wobblies um, in New York City. Um, and some of their reflections about Fletcher uh, are, um, make up the last part of the book, which I love. And their child, Anatole Dolgoff, who's now around 80, uh, knew Ben Fletcher in the 1940s because his father would often take him and his brother to go to events, right? Um, and some of the other really, I think, lovely memories of Fletcher are from Anatole, who I call the last living link to Ben Fletcher, at least the last I know of. If there are others, I'd love to know of them, right? But who as a child, right? He's not yet 10 has direct memories of hanging out with Fletcher and his father in Brooklyn and at the old Wobbly Sailor Hall in Lower Manhattan in a place that no doubt is entirely different than it was uh, in the late 40s. And he dies in 1949. He's buried in an unmarked grave, right, um, which tells us about um, his family's financial situation. He, uh, the, the funeral was attended by about 100 people. That's a lot, right? Like uh, there's obituaries in the New York Times. Um, as well as a number of black newspapers, as well as the Wobbly Press. So, you know, he, we also know that he continued to believe in the same ideals until his final days, probably till his death, based on, again, correspondence that he had and memories of friends of his. So even though a lot of other people had sort of joined the communist movement in the 30s and 40s, Fletcher continued to believe in the IWW specifically. And I always think also about how in the 30s, if he had not been ill, what he would have done as a crackjack speaker and organizer when unions re are born in the mid-30s, would he have been a part of that, right? Like, these are hypotheticals, but they're tantalizing to imagine. And, and quite 
like you said, he was only in his mid forties, right? So he, he still had many years ahead of him were it not for health troubles. And so I can see that even if I don't, I mean, who knows what would have been, but um, yeah. So, so, so Fletcher will be loved, right? Everyone who re- speaks about him speaks about him very lovingly, right? That he was a good person, that he was a funny person, that he was not a mean spirited, angry person. But those sorts of personal sort of vignettes are few and far between, sadly. There's a lot of what ifs with Ben Fletcher. What if he hadn't gotten arrested so young and hadn't had those tethers to you know, per, like inhibit his organizing? What if his health had been better in the 30s? It's a fascinating book. Before I let you go, I do want to bring us to a conclusion here and come back around to what we were saying earlier about how does this history help provide instruction for today? And like specifically, I'm thinking about the model of unionism embraced by Local 8 and the practices of it to organize labor today. For instance, like term limits. Could you imagine in most AFL-CIO unions, what would happen if you weren't able to be president of a local for 20 years? Like what that would require in terms of changing the internal organizing model? So those are the things I want to hear about is like the things that are anathema today are things like oral contracts, term limits for local officers, the paid organizer that kind of parachutes around the entire country that was also not embraced by Local 8. So what does Local 8 offer for today? Lessons to improve our organizing and any other comments to that effect that you'd like to share? We might sort of put these in two buckets. Um, one are the sort of issues or tactics and, and the sort of um, policies that, that unions organize around, which isn't just Local 8, but IWW, right? Like so. You know, the uh, one is that, you know, if you were a wobbly, you were a true believer in this cause, not just in um, I'm in a union, right, but also I'm in a union that actually very clearly says at the start of their preamble, you know, workers and employers share nothing in common. And so class struggle. I always say also that dock workers and other maritime workers get that, too, because the divide between employers and employees was quite stark and no one was elevated into the ranks of ship captain or ship owner. And so these, this particular industry, it's not the only one, it's very easy for the work itself and the industry itself to sort of educate workers that there's us and there's them, right? And so, you know, I think one most basic lesson in terms of that regard is that um, we don't just depend upon our elected leaders or paid staff to sort of do the work. Everyone's an organizer. Even when Fletcher was a uh, paid leader, he was organizing, right? Um, and I can't speak for everyone in the union, I'm sure not everyone was. Right, like, uh, but those who are committed to the cause, as Fletcher was, well, that means you're always organizing. You, as workers, can have power even without an oral contract. Excuse me, even without a written contract, as you noted. But also, even if you don't represent the majority of the workers, you can basically um, a well-organized minority of people within a group, be it a workforce or some other institution, can in fact exert power if they're well organized and committed. And so, I actually think that. For, for the 95% of private sector workers who are not in unions in the U.S. in 2021, that doesn't mean that, uh, of course, you might want a union, right? But even if you don't have a formal bargaining, organizing together can get the goods, as the IWW likes to say, right? Like, um, in terms of term limits, I do think that actually is sort of very obvious and important that too many unions, I mean, some unions are not corrupt, but there's too many examples of union corruption. And although we're happy to bash employers for being corrupt, it really hurts the movement 
right? Um, when there are examples, too many, most obviously recently in the UAW leadership, where they really don't have direct democracy and they really have leaders who are taking money from employers, right, um, for their own personal gain and against the benefits of their members. If you're in part of a movement, those things kill, right? Like, uh, because um, workers who are considering on the fence, they just see that hypocrisy. The IWW can be accused of many mistakes and sort of wrong turns, but, but not about believing and sort of committing to these sorts of core ideals, which includes both anti-capitalism, socialism, but also sort of anti-racism. And so that's sort of the other bucket, right? Right, Which is that, you know, the working class in the US in 1900 and in 2021 was and is more diverse than the middle and the upper classes. It always will be. And so if you believe in working class power, then um, having to sort of do everything we can to sort of get rid of our own prejudices is essential whether it's sexism or homophobia or xenophobia or racism. The Wobbies organize against all those, some cases better, more effectively than others. Also, have, of course, having leaders of color, you know, the Wobbies actually have very impressive anti-racist rhetoric, but only in some cases did they demonstrate that, right, through organizing black workers. Philadelphia wasn't the only place. Um, timber workers in Louisiana and Texas are another famous example. Right. And so it wasn't the only case. It is, though, the best case, Philadelphia dock workers, where they actually proved in action what they claim to believe in theory. Now, I also like to say the IWW organized Chinese and Japanese farm workers, Mexican miners, Native Americans. So I'm not just saying that just because they only didn't organize black people everywhere, they weren't doing actually other impressive organizing of other oppressed groups. But as far as specifically African Americans, the Philadelphia Waterfront is really the single best example, and Fletcher, for better or worse, the single best example of a black wobbly leader. In 2021, I think sort of having a black-led anti-racist union is something that, like I was saying at the beginning, in 2005, that was a less interesting example for many of us. I guess I was interested then. But, uh, you know, but I know for a fact that in 2021, there are more of us, which is great, right? Whether it's because of the killing of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, whether it's because of Donald Trump, whether it's because of COVID, whether it's because of the financial crash of 2008, 9, 10, as well as sort of the economic pain, whether it's all these things, right, um, together, but uh, sort of the, the contradictions of the status quo are real and maybe more apparent in 2021 than they might have been to some people in 2006. And so I think that's why actually there's more interest in my book now, not just because I'm very different, um, and even though this version is much better than the first version, I think it's actually the times have changed um, in the last 15 years, um, in some ways for the worse, 450,000 Americans dead due to COVID, right? Like, uh, but in some ways for the better, more of us are open to sort of, you know, that history is not over, right? Like uh, that, in fact, it's just begun, but only if we have the sort of vision and sort of are willing to take the risk to sort of get there. Our guest has been Peter Cole. The book is Ben Fletcher, The Life and Times of the Black Wobbly. It's in its second edition from PM Press. It's a really fantastic book. I can't praise it enough. It's on my short list for all labor books that people need to read. Uh, we're going to include it in our show notes. And I just want to thank you again for taking the time to speak with us on Labor Wave. Oh, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Having someone who sort of takes my work seriously is, of course, always appreciated. And 
given, I think, the needs of our times, I appreciate having the chance to sort of share with your listeners. Well, we'll have to have you again sometime. Please. 